When someone comes into my office and says, Pastor Daniel, I've made a million mistakes and they're crying about it. I say, you know what? I'm sorry that you've made a million mistakes. But the fact that you're in here weeping about it is a good thing. Because that proves that you are God's child. Because you are convicted by the Holy Spirit. I'm like, there are thousands of people doing exactly what you've been doing and they don't think twice about it. Because God loves his own enough to say, not you, my child. When you think of a servant, you first think of actions. But serving is also about words. As believers in Christ, we're to serve Him with everything we are, to all in need. In this teaching, Pastor Daniel will explain just how far Lot goes to protect the visitors he's entertaining. And it's not pretty. Now here's Pastor Daniel in Genesis 19.1 with part one of his message entitled, Sodom and Gomorrah. We left off last week at the end of Genesis chapter 18 and we found that Abraham was interceding. He was standing in the gap. He was drawing near to God and he was standing in the gap for the righteous of Sodom. If you recall, the Lord and two angels came and visited Abraham. They reaffirmed to him and Sarah that they were going to have a child, even in Sarah's old age. And as they were leaving, Abraham finishing well by walking them out to the edge of his property, then the Lord says, should I tell Abraham, my servant, what I'm, what's going on? And, and he clues Abraham into the reality that these two angels are here to see if the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah was as it was told to them through prayer. And they were there to destroy it. And we saw Abraham very simply standing in the gap, leaning into God's perfections, his characteristics, and saying, far be it from you, Lord, to destroy the righteous with the unrighteous. That's not like you, God. And no doubt, hopefully in his mind, he's thinking of his nephew Lot, saying, if you go destroy Sodom and Gomorrah, I know where my nephew lives. And so he's concerned and he's standing in the gap. And we find out in this passage that God says, look, if there's only 10, I won't destroy the city. So now it ends with the simple phrase, so the Lord went his way as soon as he had finished speaking with Abraham and Abraham returned to his place. Now, from there, look at what happens. So Genesis chapter 19, verse 1 says this. So the two angels came to Sodom in the evening and Lot was sitting in the gate of Sodom. When Lot saw them, he rose to meet them and he bowed himself with his face toward the ground. I said, here now, my lords, please turn into your servant's house and spend the night and wash your feet that then you may rise early and go on your way. And they said, no, but we will spend the night in the open square. But he insisted strongly. So they turned into him and entered his house. Then he made them a feast and baked unleavened bread, and they ate. 
So it's fascinating that in chapter 18, Abraham is sitting in his tent and he sees these guys coming and he's moved with hospitality. And we made a strong point last week about hospitality being a very Christ-like thing to do. Simply blessing people. And Abraham goes out of his way and now these angels show up at Sodom and it's evening time. So we're placing it at a time in the day. Maybe right about like a time like right now where it's the evening time, the sun is about to set, and Lot is sitting there in the gate of Sodom. Now, what's interesting is that in, in the Bible, when someone is sitting in the gates, the gates were where the elders of the city assembled. They were where the people who had some sort of sway or, or somebody who was uh, well thought of, they sat in the city gates. So... Um, in a lot of ways, when you see and Lot is there, he sees these guys come on in. He's sitting in a place of prestige and he sees these guys come in and a lot like his uncle Abraham, Lot is moved to be hospitable to them. He rises to meet them in verse one and he bows himself with his face toward the ground. This is traditional Near Eastern hospitality. This elder in this town now approaches these men. He bows his face to the ground in, a, in an outward sign of humility. He says to them, Hear now, my lords, lowercase l, lowercase o, lowercase r, and lowercase d. Again, it's that word Adonai. It's, it's you who are above me. You know, and, and it's amazing how often in the scriptures we find characters, people in the Bible acting out the humility that we should have in Christ. Acting it out, using words, using actions to say, look, I am here to serve you. Jesus said, if you want to be great in his kingdom, we should be the servant of all. And every time we see this in the scriptures, we should go back and say, Lord, give me a simple servant's heart. And we should all at the same time repent of our lack of a servant's heart. Because no matter how much of a servant you are, I mean, we all are, if we're honest about what's in our heart, nobody really likes to be a servant. We always would rather be served than to serve. And then we think of the teachings of Jesus where he said, the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And we're supposed to be the same way. So we don't want to miss it when we see it. So he says, here now, my lords, turn into your servant's house and spend the night and wash your feet. Then you may rise up early and go your way. He's like, listen, come stay at my house. And they originally say, no, we want to spend the night in the open square. And we're going to see how this is going to play out. But it says, I love this, Lot insisted strongly. I think it's an important thing. Oftentimes, we're too proud to let people serve us when the need arises. Some of us are like that where Somebody wants to bless you, but you are too proud to let them. And I think that it's an important thing when there's a time that someone wants to bless you, give them the blessing of blessing you. Don't be too proud to receive blessings from people because there's a season for that. And these angels, they wanted to stay in the square, but Lot was insistent. He was insistent and the angels relented. And it's beautiful here because what it says is that Lot made them a feast and baked unleavened bread and they ate. Now between what we saw in Genesis 18 and now what we're seeing in Genesis 19, you're figuring that these angels were probably pretty full at this point. They'd been feasting. They had a feast with Abraham. Now they're having a feast 
at Lot's house. A feast with unleavened cakes. I like that. That's why I love the Bible. People are full in the Bible. They're enjoying food in the Bible. Now, in verse 4, things start to get really ugly inside them. So far, all's well. But look, now before they lay down, the men of the city, the men of Sodom, both young and old, all the people from every quarter surrounded the house. In verse 5, and they called to Lot and said to him, where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us that we may know them. And then my translation has the word carnally in italics. I'll explain that. So Lot went out to them through the doorway, shut the door behind him, and said, Please, my brethren, do not do so wickedly. See, now I have two daughters who have not known a man. Please let me bring them out to you, and you may do to them as you wish. Only do nothing to these men, since this is the reason they have come under the shadow of my roof. And they said, stand back. Then they said, this one came in here to stay here, and he keeps acting as a judge. Now we will deal worse with you than with them. So they pressed hard against the man Lot and came near to break down the door. But the men reached out with their hands and pulled Lot into the house with them and shut the door. And they struck the men who were at the doorway of the house with blindness both small and great, so that they became weary trying to find the door. Now, this gets really nasty very quick. So they finish feasting, it's bedtime, and all of a sudden it says that all of the men, all of the people of Sodom, from every quarter, young men and old men, they all came together and they knocked at Lot's door and they said, Lot, where are those two travelers? We want you to send them out because we want to have sexual relations with them. Okay? So, remember, these angels are there to, to check it out, what's going on. And you can imagine this. Imagine if all of a sudden a visitor shows up at your house. You're like, hey, come stay with me. And all of a sudden there's a knock at your door and your whole neighborhood's there. And they're like, hey, where's your visitors? We want to have sexual relations with them. That's exactly what goes on here. Now, this is not the only sin of Sodom and Gomorrah, but this is the final straw. This is where the word sodomy comes from. So sodomy, you guys all know what it means. And if you don't know, I wouldn't encourage you to Google it. Just ask somebody. Please don't Google it. Please. Please. It's where it comes from. Right? And so you think to yourself, oh, this is bad, right? This is bad. And then it gets almost worse because Lot has a great idea. Look at what Lot says. It says, Please, my brethren, do not do so wickedly. See now, I have two daughters who have not known a man. Please let me bring them out to you, and you may do to them as you wish. A good dad. I'm being facetious. So he's got two daughters who have never known a man, so, so they're virgins. And he said, Listen, instead of doing what you want to do to these guys, here's my two daughters. Do what you want to do to them. Just don't do wickedly to the men. Now, I need to unpack this. Now, first, homosexuality. The Bible teaches from cover to cover that any sort of same-sex intimacy, if you can even call it that, is an abomination against God. That means it is outside of God's design. You get it in the book of Leviticus, chapter 18, 
in numerous places. Leviticus chapter 20. You get it obviously here. Because we're going to see how this is going to end. Once you move into the New Testament, people would say, well, Jesus never said anything about homosexuality. And that's true. Jesus doesn't use the word one time. But Jesus also says that God's law is perfect. And he came to fulfill it. So the reality is, is that even though Jesus didn't use the word, doesn't mean he, does, he believes it's not sinful. He's acknowledging that God's law is perfect. The Apostle Paul uses homosexuality numerous times, most specifically in Romans chapter 1. And if you want to read it in your own time, I would encourage you to read Romans chapter 1, verses 20 to 27. To give you a, what he's saying in a nutshell, he's saying in effect that when people choose to reject God, God gives them over to a depraved mind. The way God judges rebellion is to give somebody over to their rebellion. God's greatest judgment on somebody is letting them do what they want to do naturally. And that's a terrifying thing. See, what makes a Christian different from a non-Christian is not necessarily our actions. The difference is, is that when something we want to do is wrong, for a Christian, you get that check of the Holy Spirit. That doesn't mean you're not going to do it. But because you're his kid, he's going to say, hey, you're my child, not for you. That's the main difference. And so I always tell people, when someone comes into my office and says, Pastor Daniel, I've made a million mistakes, and they're crying about it, I say, you know what? I'm sorry that you've made a million mistakes, but the fact that you're in here weeping about it is a good thing. Because that proves that you are God's child. Because you are convicted by the Holy Spirit. I'm like, there are thousands of people doing exactly what you've been doing, and they don't think twice about it. Because God loves his own enough to say, not you, my child. With that reality being the case, one of the ways God judges humanity is to give them over to exactly what they want. That's why we have this tendency to think, well, if, if God is against greed, why did the greedy get richer? Right? You ever hear logic like that? If we know greediness is bad and they're, they're oppressing people, why do they end up with more? Because by God giving them more, he's actually judging them. There's nothing worse than being judged by God allowing you to have what you want. Not what he wants for you, but what we want. And Romans 1 teaches that when a culture will not acknowledge God, God will give them over to the way that they think. And as that progresses, as that progresses, you will start to have aberrations in God's created order. And the most basic one that Paul picks up is that a man is going to have attractions for a man or a woman is going to have attractions for a woman. Why? Because when God created him, he created a male and female. Diverse but unified. One humanity, but with man parts and woman parts. That's the most basic way God created things. And so when there is an aberration or a warping of nature, you have men desiring men and women desiring women. Now, if you put all that together and you look at the world that we live in today, homosexuality is not the problem today. Homosexuality is a symptom of a bigger problem. The reason it would seem that homosexuality is flourishing in America today is not because there's a problem with homosexuals. The problem is there's a whole culture that has rejected God. And that is the outworking of that rejection. It's a symptom. So if I have a cough, the cough isn't the problem. There's something in my lungs that's the problem. Does it make sense? And that's why I believe the greatest deterrent against a culture that is rejecting God 
is not more righteous laws, but is the people who believe in that God to follow hard after him and be a witness, which will make the difference. I'm not saying we should just let laws go either. But that should not be our... The weapons of our warfare are lawmaking? No. The weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but they're mighty in God for the tearing down of strongholds. So the reality is, is from cover to cover, homosexuality is seen as an act that is in rebellion against God. Now, if... And I don't want to get too far into this because I'm going to end up talking about this in the summertime. But most people, when they say, well, listen... How can you say that homosexuality is wrong? I've always been that way. You guys ever heard that argument? That just comes naturally to me. And people are like, I don't know what to say about that. Let me explain this to you. The fact that it comes naturally, that's exactly the problem. For someone, same-sex attraction comes naturally. That's the problem. Being really selfish comes very naturally to me. That's the problem. See, what comes naturally to all of us is the problem for all of us. Because we inherited not the ability to make mistakes, to commit sins, but we inherited from Adam a sin disposition. That rebellion is our default condition. So for one person, same-sex attraction is the rebellion. For somebody else, you can't go near a liquor store without drinking a six-pack. For somebody else, you can't go to a convenience store without buying $2,000 worth of scratch-offs. For somebody else, you need the nicest, newest thing, and right as the next one comes out, and you're in debt up to your eyeballs. For another person, you can't go buy Krispy Kreme without selling the place out. This is important. Listen, in our day and age, people think that sexual sin is the worst of all sins, and same-sex attraction is the worst of all the worst kinds of sins. And I'm here to tell you that that's just dead wrong. For somebody who has same-sex attraction and someone who's judgmental and pharisaical in your heart, you both need the grace of God equally. So we need to stop as a church thinking that people who have same-sex attraction are the worst sinners. We need to start thinking like the Apostle Paul, I'm the chief of sinners. We all got our stuff. All of us. And we're all radically in the need of the grace of God. I was talking to someone who's like, well, that's easy for you to say because you're heterosexual. I'm like, but listen, heterosexual sexual immorality is rampant in America as well. All people, no matter what your struggle is, no matter what it is, we are all equally sinners in need of salvation. Equally. And we all come to Jesus. Amen. We all come to Jesus the same way. We come saying, Lord, I am broken. Left up to my own devices, God, you are going to get radical rebellion. And sure, my rebellion looks different from that person's and that person's that one. But it's, it's not about their sin. Lord, I want you to deal with my sin. And as Pastor Bill taught us on Sunday, if we start taking the planks out of our own eyes, then in humility we can go and say, listen, Listen, God's working on me. I, am not, I have not arrived. But can we talk about something I see in your life? And it's not judgmental. It's not standing in the judge's seat. It's simply a brother broken or a sister broken going to another brother or sister saying, look, I love you enough to be concerned for you and pray for me too. I got a whole plethora of my own stuff. Make sense? So we'll talk about this more. But we need to say this because people struggle with this stuff. How do we navigate this? I always tell people, how should we navigate homosexuals? I'm like, the same way we navigate all sinners. 
We love on them. We encourage them. We do not excuse sinfulness. And we point them to Jesus because Jesus can save anybody. He saved you and he saved me. That's the same for someone who's got a gambling problem, who's got a food addiction, who's got an alcohol addiction, who's got a drug addiction, who maybe someone in here is squeaky clean and you're more righteous than Jesus and you look down as a judge on everyone. We approach you the same way. (laughs) We're all the same. We're all the same. So that's the homosexuality piece. And then, of course, you have Lot with his great ideas, offering up his daughters. Now, we read this and we think to ourselves, this is absolutely horrible. And it is. But the reality is, is that in that culture, I hate to tell you girls, women had no rights. They were considered to be property. Daughters were second-class citizens. And that is abhorrent to us. Why? Because America was founded on the teachings of the Bible where all people are created equal. And you look at every single culture where the gospel is not permeating the culture and you will find the same exact thing. Same exact thing. So the reason we even can say this is awful, we say thank you, Jesus. So you got to realize, you remember Ephesians chapter 5? And I'm not getting anywhere tonight. This is too much, you know. (laughs) Do you remember in Ephesians chapter 5 when the Apostle Paul in verse 22 says, submit to one another in love. And then it says, wives, submit to your husbands as unto the Lord. And women say, you have to be kidding me. The Apostle Paul, I mean, how sexist can you be? Right? You guys heard that? The Bible is so, so sexist and misogynistic. It's just horrible. And they, they throw all, I'm like, listen, you don't even get this. When the Apostle Paul said, wives, submit to your husbands, nobody talked like that in that culture. Why? Because women didn't even realize they had the choice. When the Apostle Paul says, wives, submit to your husbands, he's saying, look, even though you're free in Jesus, still live this way. When they read that in Ephesus, they were just like, the men's jaws dropped. Because no one ever, you can't find any writings like that outside of the Bible. Because nobody thought that way. Women just did what their husbands told them to. They didn't have jobs. They weren't educated. And if they didn't have a husband or an older son, they were on welfare. That's the way it went. So when Paul says, wives, submit to your husbands, he's saying, look, because you are free in Christ, because God has set you free, glorious liberty, Don't just abandon your family, but submit to your husband as you submit to the Lord. And if anybody's being sexist in that, the Apostle Paul's really tough on men. Because as wives, you submit, men die for your wives. And I don't know about you, but if you said, hey, look, you get two choices. You either get to submit or you get to die. Which one are you going to choose? Right? There's three verses for girls and like seven for guys. I'm not getting anywhere today. You guys, listen. Listen. I need to be serious about this for a second. You guys, you should never, ever tell your wife that she needs to submit to you. Ever. You should love them the way Jesus loves the church and your wife will be happy because she knows that you are looking out for them more than you're looking out for yourself. Jesus is real. In today's message from Genesis 19, we heard Pastor Daniel tell us what Sodom and Gomorrah's predicament really was, that people were doing naturally what came to them. Left to our own devices without God, we inevitably choose the sinful path. 
For most of us, our smartphone is an extension of our body. They are constantly ringing and dinging, telling us what to do and where to go next. We want to encourage you to subscribe to the Jesus is Real podcast. Each week, the programs right here on the radio are available in podcast format. So if you miss one of the broadcasts, you can always catch up by subscribing to the Jesus is Real podcast. Log on to JesusIsRealRadio.com. It's our joy to bring you Jesus is Real Radio each day here on this station. We want to give you the opportunity to partner with us here at Jesus is Real Radio so we can bring the ministry to as many people as possible. Simply log on to JesusIsRealRadio.com and select Partner from the main menu. There you can help spread God's Word by becoming a monthly supporter or by giving a one-time gift. Next time on Jesus is Real Radio, Pastor Daniel will continue through this uncomfortable chapter of Genesis when Lot's family leaves Sodom and Gomorrah. To follow God, we have to throw everything else to the wind and not worry about what others are doing. That's all coming up next time on Jesus is Real Radio.